Today's episode is brought to you by Entire Productions. Are you planning a meeting or an event? Don't pull your hair out or lose sleep. Entire Productions is the CBD for your virtual event aches and pains. And he took one look at this and he opened up his checkbook and he wrote us our first check. And Daniel and I were like, but we didn't come here for money. We came here for advice. Daniel and I said to him, hey, Cal, well, wait a minute. And then we realized somewhere I'd read, you never say no to money. Welcome to Fascinating Entrepreneurs. How do people end up becoming an entrepreneur? How do they scale and grow their businesses? How do they plan for profit? Are they in it for life? Are they building to exit? These and a myriad of other topics will be discussed to pull back the veil on the wizardry of successful and fascinating entrepreneurs. If you'd like to know how to scale and grow your business and make more profit, sign up on my website, natashamiller.co, to get on the wait list for my entrepreneurial master's course. You must come and watch fascinating entrepreneurs because Natasha Miller is one of the best entrepreneurs in the world and she's running this amazing blog and you should come and listen to the great people that she brings in and it's not about me being great it's about you just hearing the stories and the more and more stories that you hear the more and more encouragement you'll get because that's all that we do we listen to stories Sandy Hammer is a bright star on the special event industry, having co-founded a digital product called All Seated. That took the industry by storm, but wait until you hear what they're up to now. Now let's get right into it. It's funny, if you would have asked me as a kid, what do I want to do when I grow up? I would have said, I want to be a nurse. I want to be a teacher. I actually always like to be around people. My brother and I, I would be the one that would invite people to the house and everybody would get everything that's in the fridge and in the pantry and everything. My brother would invite everybody into the house and he'd stand behind the curtain to eat something so he didn't have to share anything. We were like, night and day, we grew up in a home that was very giving and my parents always invited people and there was always people at our table and everything. But the way that my brother and I are, even still today, we're very, very different people. And I always loved being around people. But an entrepreneur was not something that I even knew the word. If you would have asked me in my early teenage years, what does it mean? I probably wouldn't have even been able to say it, never mind spell it or anything else. But I was very, very creative. I always had a creative mind. I actually was artistic. My degrees in art, I went to art school in England in the early 80s when punk rock was at its height. Were you a punk rocker? Not quite. I don't think I even had my ears pierced at that time. I grew up in a very strict Jewish home that we lived in a small little ghetto. Coming to an art school in the 80s, out of my 18 years of growing up in a very, very little community, was a real shocker for me. And all I really wanted to do was to paint. I just wanted to have a paintbrush. I wanted to paint things. And the 80s in England was all about internal expression. It was all about if you feel like a cat, come dressed as a cat, explore the cat. I think for the first year, I was in such shock. I just watched everything that was going by me. I couldn't believe it. And actually, it was a shame because I kind of got put off what art was all about. I didn't really understand it. I wasn't deep enough at that time 
to really understand it. It didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Did Did you think you were going to be a professional artist or an art teacher? Yeah, I thought I'd be an art teacher. I loved the idea of teaching. I really liked people. Those days I had a lot more patience than I do these days. But in my teenage years, 18, 19, I really loved the idea of teaching and I loved art. I was very, very passionate about art. And once I was so disturbed by it, it was really a disturbing time for me to understand that nobody was really interested in me painting a bowl of flowers or painting the sea or they were not impressed. It didn't matter what I did, but they kept saying, where's your internal feelings? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I just want to paint something. They wanted you to be more messy and... Yeah, they wanted you to be Picasso or I don't know what, honestly, even that I don't think would have suited them. So I went and I did a marketing degree because I really had no idea what to do. And I thought marketing at the time was creative. A friend of mine said to me, you can do marketing and advertising and maybe you can incorporate some of your arts and you might enjoy it. And actually, you'll love this. Again, in the 80s, I happened to grow up in a great era in the John Cleese from 40 Towers, if you know, he was just coming into himself and he ran a marketing course in my university. You've got to look for him 35 years ago, this is. It was an unbelievable course. He'd walk in just like he was, like a raving lunatic. He'd walk in fast, furious to the front of the stage and he'd say, Everybody thinks marketing is long messages and you've got to think through this, 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 and it's not. Connect with the people. It's all about the connection with the people. Things that he said to me 35 years ago is things that we talk about now, right? Through social media, it's networking or things like that. That didn't exist 35 years ago. It was always grassroots marketing. Understand your messaging, understand your markets, things like that. But he was revolutionary in the way that he thought. And not many people took him very serious. Obviously, he didn't make a career of it. But at that time, he was pretty passionate about getting a message across. Anyway, I'd finished my degree and I got married very young and I went to live in America. And entrepreneur didn't really come into the picture. It was just about, I just needed a job. But it's interesting because my first job was actually, I was a rep for a lingerie company. And while it wasn't being an entrepreneur, it kind of was a little bit because I had to make all my own, I had to fight for the space in the stores. Like I'd go to the big malls and I'd go out there and we'd discuss shelf space, like where will our product sit? And they'd say, well, you've got this, this, and this. And I'd have to negotiate with them and say, oh, but it's a shame because I really want that spot over there, like where all the customers are going by. I really wasn't a salesperson. It wasn't really about me selling, but I love people and I love building relationships. I think it'd be great training for anyone to understand how to communicate with someone to get what you want that's mutually beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. And it was great skills that I learned. I actually loved what I did, even though it was lingerie sales, so it was fun. I liked the idea of getting to know the people and becoming friends with them and understanding what their needs were and everything. And then basically we left Washington and I had an opportunity to take a little bit of time off because I had by then two small children. And we'd gone back to England because my husband at the time was studying a PhD and we decided to go back to England. And at that time, Childcare in England was so expensive. It was almost not worth me going to work. There was like, I wasn't a lawyer or an accountant or going into sales or anything like that. So I decided I'd stay home. And that's when 
I think entrepreneur rings in people's heads, either when you're just a creative person or anybody really. It's, I really believe anybody can be an entrepreneur. I don't believe you're born to be an entrepreneur. I don't believe you have to grow up in a family of entrepreneurs. And I think that the ringing bells for me was, I just wanted to keep myself busy. I just wanted, my mind was working. I love taking care of my children. But at the same time, I was looking for something for myself. Now it was the 90s and computers had started to come out. In the 80s, computers came out. In the 90s, people were buying them for their homes. We couldn't really afford one, but my brother had one because he worked for a bigger company. And I was very fascinated. I was fascinated by the programs like Adobe. And I don't know if you remember Coral Draw that came out. I don't even know if it exists anymore. Yes. Did you use Quark? Quark Express? Quark. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Quark Express and uh, Illustrator, like the first programs that came out. And I was fascinated because of my background and my art background that you could start designing on a computer, which I found really interesting. And I'd never picked up a paintbrush since I'd left art school all those years ago. I'd never, ever picked up a paintbrush again. I'd kind of just moved on. I decided, okay, that wasn't for me. I enjoyed it. I moved on. And when I had the time when the kids would go to bed at night, I'd walk down to my brother who lived me and they were pretty much already in bed, but I'd get on his computer and I'd end up going all night. I was just amazed by what you could do and design on it. And I had a friend that was homeschooling her children and she had a very interesting way of teaching them. If the kid wasn't interested or had hard time in maths, she'd teach it through English. She had a very unusual way of teaching. And she asked me if I would illustrate like a workbook that she'd done, but she'd done it in just like scratches of pieces of paper. And I said, yeah, I learned this new program. It's called Coral Drawer. And I know a little bit of Adobe. And she gave me this book, took me about, I don't know, three months. Also, I didn't know how to save. I would actually read a book in between the floppy disks saving because it took so long. I could read chapters so that I wouldn't kill the computer. My brother would come down in the middle of the night because I'd been banging on the computer because it was so slow. <laughs> He'd ask me what I was doing. Anyway, to cut a long story short, we opened up a publishing house. We produced six books and we decided to produce them ourselves because every publisher we went to said, oh, we love it, but it's too different. We don't know. It's not kind of the usual. And after about the 20th or 30th shop we'd been to, I said to Susan, my friend, I go, why don't we just do this ourselves? How complicated can it be? We'll find out a printer. We'll go to the printer. Let me go to the shops and see if the end user wants it. Let me go to the shops. So we walked into WH Smith, which was a big news agent. And we walked into a supermarket, which they sold at that time, kind of books by the counters. And we asked to see the buyers. And I'd already worked with buyers because of my last job. I knew the kind of people that they were. So I kind of felt comfortable talking to them because I'd already experienced a little bit. We asked them a little bit and all of them said, if you print them, here's our order. And we actually went with those orders in hand to the bank to get a bank loan so that we could then go to the publisher to say, look, we've got a bank loan and we've got orders. Give us a deal. And okay, I'm going to stop you right here because this is such a great lesson for entrepreneurs today. So, so many people want to be successful, want to make a million dollar business, and they are not testing the market and they're not making sure that what they have is a viable product. And that really 
could lead to great despair. So this is so wonderful. And I didn't know that you began your entrepreneurial journey at this moment. So were you and this woman partners in this business? And did you make it official or were you still just kind of running it through your own bank accounts? We did open up a company. We were lucky. We got advice through friends. A friend was an accountant. A friend we knew was a lawyer. Somebody helped us. We knew nothing. Remember, I had two small children and then I found out I was pregnant with my third kid and she was homeschooling three children. So there's a lot to be said about timing. People always ask me like, what does it really mean? And I always say, you've got to work really hard. You've got to have a drop of luck. And timing is a very big thing to be successful. So we got very lucky. We got a mentor. He owned a bookstore, but he knew a lot about publishing. He told us a publishing house to call. He gave us his name that we could use. He gave us a few tips of what to do. And we printed with holding our breaths like mad because we had to print a minimum order of 100,000 books. And we had four books by then. So we had an order of like 25,000 books each, which we were like besides ourselves. Like we'd got a little bit of orders, but nothing that would compare to 100,000 books being sold. And we were really not sleeping. We were both very, very nervous. We'd never done anything like this. And all I can tell you is, is that in eight weeks, we started our next run. We were written up. The London Times came to, I wish I could find a picture There was me with my newborn baby now sitting on the drying machine. My other two kids were playing with her kids. And I was on the computer with the drying machine going with the baby doing these books. She was more of a business person. She ran the accounts and the money. And we couldn't get enough print runs. So the London Times called us DIY new book publishers. We'd hit a niche. The market was ready for a change. We only kept it going for about three years. It was the wrong time in our lives. We couldn't keep up with the demand. They were begging us to have offices and open up a company. My business partner refused to give up homeschooling her children, and she couldn't cope with it. And after two years, she wanted out. And I was left running this business with three small children, and we were about to move again. We had to make a decision about where to live and where to go. And we sold the business to another publishing house. We made a little bit of money, which was we'd never had. We paid off all our loans. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So tell me how after that, your kids must have gotten a bit older, how you ended up in the event space. So my husband at the time had a fellowship. We were in England and he had just heard from the Hebrew University of Israel that he'd won a fellowship for two years. And it was a great opportunity. It was under a very big judge and us being Jewish, and we were interested to go to try out living there. So we arrived in Israel, and I was very excited because I'd been given an opportunity to go back to the artwork. The Israel Museum had offered me a job being part of the marketing team, and I was beyond excited for this opportunity. However, (laughs) we arrived in Israel in the late 90s, and there was a boom in Israel of high-tech. And Anybody that had a marketing degree that arrived at the airport, the Jewish agency, which was the workforce for the people that were coming in to welcome you, to make sure you had a job, to make sure you're this. It was like a whole organization. And they had my resume and my name was up on a board. And they'd got my resume probably because we had to give in a whole load of documents when you go into a new country and everything. 
And they sat with me for two hours at the airport. Like they wined and dined my kids. They took care of them. And they offered me a job in a high-tech company with five times the pay of what I was going to get in the Israel Museum. And they told me it would be very short time. The country needs you. These companies need you. We don't have English speakers and we're going into new territory and we need marketing writers. We need marketeers. It was like this entire sales pitch, like brainwashing sales pitch that by the time I'd left the airport, I had signed up to a very big high-tech company. (laughs) How did that make you feel? Were you feeling like, oh my God, I'm the chosen one? Or were you scared? Were you like... I have to do this. You know what? I was exactly like you said, I felt very obligated to do it, but I had a little bit of a sadness and I kept saying to myself, six months, I remember calling the museum and telling them, look, I really don't know what to do. I feel really bad. I'm letting you down. This is like a dream of what I want to do, but I feel like I'm coming to this country that I can really help them. And they were very understanding. In fact, if somebody would have turned around to me and said, no way, you either come here tomorrow or you're never going to have a job here again. They were like, no, we'll hold the doors open for you. We understand, which made it a little bit easier for me to get into this direction. Anyway, 10 years later, (laughs) I didn't get out of it. Like many of us didn't get out of it. We just got soaked in to lots of things. I wouldn't just say the money. The money was definitely interesting. It's not like I came rich out of it, but I definitely was able to give my kids certain activities that maybe I wouldn't have had if I would have gone to a a museum is a government paid job. It wasn't a private institute. What did you end up doing in the last year of that job? What was your overview or your purview of what you were working on? Well, the truth is within the first year of this job, I got invited to a startup company. So this company was a very, very big company. And I was running major marketing messages, international messages for them and their products. They had so many products. I was part of a very big team. And then they had a spin-off company that they wanted to spin off. And they came to eight of us out of the whole company, one from marketing, one from sales. They brought a CEO, a finance person, eight people. And they came to us and they said, we'd like to offer you to start this company. And that was my first introduction into the startup world which is also part of the entrepreneur. It wasn't me being the investor or having to make all those decisions, but I watched a whole company grow from eight people to 120 people. It's like you got a free startup entrepreneurial MBA and not having to have the risk of being the Exactly. You know about the risks later, but we- Exactly, later on, but it was an amazing learning curve for me. And a year later, the CEO came to me and he said, we just bought a company. There's going to be 60 people here tomorrow. Choose. You can do PR, marketing, or run events. I immediately said, run events. I was like, does that include travel? Or what does that include? He's like, yeah, we're going to be running events all over the world. That you know, you'll have a team. Your, so let's talk about that. That fed into your desire to be around people. So yeah. you're quite extroverted and also your hospitality and giving and being a great hostess. So this really did kind of line up with who you are as an individual. And the creativity. I knew that I would be able to be creative. See, in marketing, you can be creative. You can step out of your box, but you've got a lot of guidelines to follow. I found it quite restricting. You have brand guidelines that you have to adhere to, and you can be creative within the gray area. Exactly. And it was before the internet. 
So we were very restricted because it all had to fit within certain parameters of what we knew, television, radio, really those were the marketing material that you produced in those right. days. Print printed. Ads, exactly, which I actually had a lot of experience from my printing days. I right. knew a lot about it. And I came from the creative side, so I was very good working with the artists. So when they offered me the events and when I understood that I'd have an opportunity to create something a little bit out of the box, I just jumped at it because that for me was like, wow, maybe I can really let go of the little bit of restrictions that I'm in. And boy, did I let go. We ran events. (laughs) I mean, if I could bring you some of the people here that I ran some of these crazy events with, they could tell you a lot of stories how, again, this was in the good days. We had huge budgets. These were high-tech companies that had a lot of money to spend. And even in the down days when the markets crashed, we were a rich company. We always had money. They made their money. And so what was the impetus of leaving that and moving on to your next venture? I think at all of us that work events, it's really hard work. Everybody thought I was so glamorous. I traveled all over the world and I was on airports and planes. And honestly, after every event, I'd literally lock myself up for 48 hours to just decompress and just like come out of it because it was just so draining. And I think the only people that run events understand the level of what it really takes out of you to run a big event. We'd run events for three days. It was nonstop, morning, day and night. Some of them were as big as a thousand people. It's mentally and and emotionally and physically draining and you're on your feet making quick decisions because there's always something going wrong. There's no way to, right? And then you're on your feet for 12 to 16 hours per day that the event is actually happening, not counting the load in and the load out. Exactly. And I think that my burnout rates just came at about, 10 years, which people talk about that 10 years, decade of just constantly doing this. I was also frustrated. I was frustrated with the level of technology that we didn't have. I was around technology for years and seeing everything develop from the phones to the internet to everything that was developing. And us as as the hospitality area and the events area, we had nothing. We were still measuring spaces with tape measures. I was making a lot of mistakes. I felt that my level of expertise was at its peak. Like I knew everything I needed to know, but I had no tools to make me more and more professional and more and more efficient. Right. Efficiency. The event industry as a whole today, beside how you've contributed to it, is pretty, it's not very sophisticated and it's not very mired in technology like it could be. So keep going. And this is 10 years ago, okay, when nothing existed. We had absolutely nothing to help us except for tape measures, colored markers, folders. We had Excel files. We were very into Excel files, but Excel files didn't really help us. It wasn't from the creative. It was from the logistical side. And truthfully, the more and more you work in Excel in multiple events at multiple times, the more and more you get confused. It doesn't really help you understand things, Word documents, just more and more paper to read and more and more (laughs) things to follow. My bosses had a very hard time with me because I had a lot of things in my head. I couldn't be bothered to put it down on paper just to keep changing it every two minutes. It was just like so much work for me. What was the point? Tomorrow, there was going to be a different plan. So a lot of the processes and 
logistical operations were always in my head. And luckily, I happen to be very good at that. I actually was not very good at actually putting it in writing. I was just much more better at having it in my yeah, you're head. A, you're a visionary and not necessarily an integrator. You're too fast. And those are entities within owning a business and being an entrepreneur that are pretty typical. Even though you can understand systems and processes, you're not going to be the person who thrives on putting them into place and keeping order. They hired me one year. I mean, I had a team of people that worked for me, but they wanted me to have a specific assistant that could put everything down that was in my head so that they could get daily updates of what was going on. The poor girl, honestly, I remember her. She was like literally at her wit's end. I wasn't trying to be difficult. I'd say to her, look, okay, here it is. Blah, 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 blah. And then the next day she'd come back to me and she'd go, okay, so what are the updates? And I'd go, well, we're doing it now, blah, 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 blah. And it was totally different than what we decided the day before. I thought she was going to have a nervous breakdown after three months. And one day I sat her down and I go, listen, this is just how it is. Events are complicated. They change. We all do different things. Our minds work. Our creativity keeps going. And why should we stick to something if we think we can do something better? Why should we just be limited to saying, okay, that is the way because I made a decision two months ago? Yeah, you're not one to take the easy way out because there is comfort (laughs) in just going with the status quo and you're always innovating. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. Number one, it's free. Number two, there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. So let's get closer to when you founded All Seated. So that was what year? That was five years ago? No, no, that was in 2011. That's already about eight years ago. We founded All Seated. We didn't get to the market to 2012. That was our official launch. Where I left my company in about 2008 and I decided to take a break. I went into a bit of consultancy. I needed a downtime. I didn't really know what I was going to do. Again, entrepreneur didn't really come into my head. I just thought, okay, I need a break. I need to get out of this. You reach your 40s at that time. You think to yourself, okay, I want to change. You're still able to do it all. I definitely wasn't finished. I knew I wanted to do something else. I just wasn't sure what was it that I wanted to do. So I did some consulting. And on the way of my consultancy, I got involved with a lot of startups. And I watched the way that a lot of these startups worked. And I used to think to myself, I don't think I would do it that way. And then one day I switched that thought to, what would I actually do? Maybe there is an opportunity to do something. And then you start asking yourself these questions. Okay, maybe I would know how to do it because I've seen a lot around me. But Let's put that aside because so many entrepreneurs start and they've never had all that experience, you know, or been around it. They just get passionate about an idea, right? And I knew that I was passionate about events and I knew that I was frustrated that there were no tools out there. There was nothing out there for us. So suddenly we say this to ourselves now, okay, so where's the pain? You don't always develop something or think of something if there isn't a pain. You have to have that pain before you can actually find the solution. 
I was thinking about that. Things were suddenly like, where are my pains? And my pains were quite obvious because I was still in the marketing world. I was still, even in the consultancy world, I was running small events and still having the same pains of just like, Jesus, there's like no collaboration here. And through that pain, you suddenly realize we can do something. What can we do? And when you ask the question, what can you do? You have that aha moment of like, could I do this? Can I really do this? <laughs> I think that's just a little bit how it begins, right, Natasha? For me, it was a different path because it was a passion that was burning. Yeah, you had the music. You had right. the music passion. But for you, so let's talk about you started All Seated and was All Seated when you started it, what I know it to be as a seating like that was the thought was the measurements and the seating. And we need to tell people what all seated is. I'll tell you how it really started. I was making my youngest bar mitzvah. Okay. He was 13 at the time. And as event professionals, we are the worst people planning our own parties. We love to spend other people's money. We love to run parties for other people. But when it comes to running ourselves, suddenly you're very worried about what people are thinking, the expectations, because they know that you're a party planner and you know, they know that you run events. So I was having a really hard time with this bar mitzvah. I really didn't know what to do. And I think it was like five weeks before the event. I hadn't even got the invitation together or anything. And I walked into an office of a company that I was working for. I was doing some consulting work. And it, Daniel was the programmer of this gig that I was in. And I sat down with him and I hardly knew the guy, but as some mothers do, I started rambling on and moaning about the fact that I've got this bar mitzvah from five. He doesn't have any kids. He's single. He's really not interested in any of my conversation. <laughs> I can't even imagine why I started the conversation. I think I was really at my wits end and I just happened to sit down with him. And the first thing he did is he said to me, he goes, so what's the problem? So I go, I don't even know how many people I want. It was just a basic question like that. I can't even think what the guest list would be. You know, like, do I want to make a big event? Do I want to make a small event? He said, well, I have this program that I developed for my secretary a couple of months ago that was making a wedding and she was driving the entire office mad. So I built her this floor plan and I gave her this list to put in her names and she seated them on tables and she could tell how big she wanted her events. And I looked at him and I'm like, holy shit, really? You've got this thing? And he's like, yeah. And he pulls it out. The company had nothing to do with this. He'd literally overnight. Okay, this is amazing. Secretary. He did this just to give himself peace quiet. of mind, right? Exactly. And he was doing the same with me to give me <laughs> peace of mind and to keep me quiet. He said to me, here, here's a floor plan. It's just a square, but you can make it the measurements that you want. And then you can put these tables in and then you can see, would 50 people be enough? Will a hundred people be enough? You can get a little bit idea. And I looked at this and I was like, oh my God, can you imagine if I had this with some furniture and with the tables and I could seat the guests and I suddenly got beyond, I mean, I ruined his entire day because he thought he was getting rid of me. Whereupon I attacked him and said, hey, can you build it like this? Hey, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do this? And he's like, I'm not doing any of that. I'm programming a 3D program. They were gamers that had built this amazing software for Sony PlayStation. And he's like, I'm not building that. <laughs> but the obsession stayed inside me. And poor Daniel got a call about once a month from me for about six months to say, 
if you ever want a chance to leave your job <laughs> and come and build this software, I'd really be interested. I think we have something here. I started to do a lot of research, which Were is you what going you do to do it start. without him, no matter what. At that point, I'm not sure. I started to do a lot of research, and I knew that there was something here. There was nothing. There was no software, no nothing. So all seated started with just a floor plan. Daniel and his team sold their software eight months after I first met him. And 10 months after I met him, he called me out of the blue. He gets these messages from me, and I'm obviously very passionate about what I want to do. I suddenly had ideas of what I really saw and what I wanted to develop. And I went and sat with Daniel, and they built me the first prototype eight months later where there was a scaled floor plan, very similar, actually, to what he showed me a year ago, but it was a little bit more advanced, where you could actually design it in a few different shapes, and you could make the floor plan bigger and smaller. And we'd put in about 50 pieces of furniture and tables and different chairs. And we built algorithms at this time, just as a side project for free, as a friendly thing or? So that was a great story. So at the beginning, he said to me, what do you want to do? How do you want to do this? And I said to him, I don't think I'm the type of person that can do this on my own, but I don't really know where it's going to go. I don't really have money to invest in it. I have time to invest in it. So he said, okay, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's work together for six months. I'll build it. And once we started to work together, we really worked well together and six months came to an end and we then decided we'd be 50-50 partners. I knew that if he would ask me, I'd jump at it. I wasn't sure what he would do, truthfully. And also we knew that if we were going to bring back his team, we'd have to pay them. And he knew I didn't have any money to pay them. So he was yeah. going to be funding that. So by he said he would go in 50-50 and we jumped at it. We got a contract drawn up straight away because I knew I'd had already experience in that. And he'd worked in many startups, but he'd never owned a company before. So at that moment, so this is the beginning of the official All Seated. I'm going to assume you were bootstrapping. At what period did you start taking investments and what kind of investments? Was it angel at first? Was it self-funded for how long? So a year went by while they were coding and I stayed on at my consultancy. And I decided the minute that the first product was available for me to show someone, then I would quit my job, even though we had no money. And I, at that time, trying to save so that I'd have a few months that I wouldn't have to worry about paying my bills and whatever. So the first year came and we had one coder that Daniel was investing in. He decided to put the investment in. He needed the help. He put in a little bit more. Daniel put in a little bit more. And at the end of the second year, we got through the second year where now we had a product. We'd gone on one trip that we paid for ourselves to America. This was actually a great story. We'd just come back from meeting somebody in America. And the guy said, you know what? There's a cool guy. Maybe he can give you advice. He's got his own business. He's a New Yorker. And we went to meet him. His name was Cal Nathan. We were looking for advice. I was constantly looking for anybody that would talk to me and hear about my product and give me advice. Is it good? Is it not good? Would you use it? Would you not use it? It was all about just questions. I wasn't looking to really sell it. It wasn't ready to be sold. Right. So, so again, you're advice. testing the market. Exactly. I needed advice was this even worthy? Was it? Were we even going to get a chance before we even asked for money or looked for money? We needed a lot more of the market to give us credibility. 
there was a market fit. So we went to this guy, Cal Nathan, who has been in the industry for 20 years. He has a production company, does a lot of weddings, bar mitzvahs, a lot of corporate stuff. He was really a guy that had, had done it all. And he took one look at this and he opened up his checkbook and he wrote us our first check. And Daniel and I were like, but we didn't come here for money. We came here for advice. And then we realized somewhere I'd read, you never say no to money. You just never say no to money. It doesn't matter where it's coming from. So the initial reaction of saying, we didn't come here for money, we turned it into, we're really honored that you think that there's a market for here, that we suddenly understood that he saw something, that he was willing to take out his checkbook and put money into this business without really knowing us, but he saw something in what we were building. And that gave us such a leap of confidence because suddenly it wasn't just me thinking that there's an opportunity here. There was a businessman that had been 20 years in this business that saw something as well. And that's like everybody's dream, I think, at the beginning to have somebody from the industry that sees it. And then Cal introduced us to a guy called Arthur Bacall, who became our chairman of our advisory board, who knew everybody in New York. And that's how it works. You build opportunities, you build networks, and from those networks, you build your clientele. It is really about who you know. It's who you know and how you build it, really how you build it. And the money came a year later. We bootstrapped like crazy. We didn't get tons of money from this guy, but we got a little bit of money that we didn't take any salary. I decided to take a loan to help me and Daniel could manage himself. And the money that we got, we hired another developer because we needed developers to help us. And we built that year and then we built good enough product that we knew we were ready to go to market. And that's when we went to San Francisco. And Natasha, I think I've told you this before. If you read those books about how you get your first big check, they are 100% correct. You get no, 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 no. Hundreds of them. And you've got to be strong and you've got to keep going because if you believe, if you truly, truly believe what you're doing is right and that there is a fit and you know that there is, you don't give up. There's no way that you can go this far. And just because people are saying no, you just keep going. And it wasn't easy to hear everybody saying no. You're like, you start thinking to yourself, okay, I'm a little crazy. I'm a little crazy. Maybe there isn't anybody out there. But we just kept going. And every night we changed that presentation and we'd rework on our ideas and we changed the fonts and we just thought of everything. And it was the last day of the year. I'll never forget it because it was our last trip to America. We had no money. There was nothing left. It was like, okay, we tried. We cannot say we didn't give it all. And on that last week of December before Christmas, we were sitting at a table and we got a phone call from actually Yaron, who's our CEO today, to say that he thinks he's found us somebody, an angel investor. We were looking for angel investors at the time. He thinks he's found as a match and it's all about a match. An angel investor is somebody that believes in you even more than the product, believes in you and the product or believes just in you. But it's not about the market, really the market fit or what's going to happen 10 years from now. And he said, I think I found the guy. And we ran to wherever this guy was. It was in the marina. This guy came in and within 20 minutes, he did exactly the same. He took out his checkbook. And he wrote a big check, a check we'd never seen before. (laughs) That's amazing. And so from that time on, what was the time frame from angel investment 
to venture capital and the thought process of we should go for venture? Yeah. So it was two years. It was a year again that we bootstrapped because even if you get a big check, you still want to be very careful. You don't know when you're going to get the next check. We really believed in bootstrapping. We wanted to feel that every dollar we spent was as if it was our own money, that we were not just wasting it. We really thought very hard about everything we spent, everything we did. And by then we'd already started to get some traction and some interest, but we didn't think about venture capital until we decided that we needed to bring a CEO on board because we just knew, Daniel and I, after the whole experience of going for the angel money, which was really difficult, nothing's easy in this area. Everybody can be an entrepreneur, right? But then the ones that really succeed are the ones that, I don't know what it really is. I think it's, you can't give up. You just keep going. Every door that closes you find another door to open. Every door that closes again, you just push for that other door that opens. And you just truly, truly believe. You also have to know your limitations. So you went from angel to venture capital. I would like to talk about All Seated, but I want to jump over because what's happening right now since March of 2020 is that you had to reformulate the business to survive. And so I'd really like to Talk about Expo. What happened? How quickly did you come up with the idea? It's blowing my mind. And I think everyone needs to know about it because at this point, we're going to be doing virtual events for at least three quarters only for the most part. And then when we're able to get back together in person, then we can all use All Seated more for what it's for. But talk to us about Expo. I'm going to talk about Expo, but I want people to understand that we were an evolution. We went from a 2D floor plan to a 3D floor plan because of the gaming environment that we were in and Daniel and his team to what we called a vision product, which is where we actually could scan the venues and model them and make them come alive all within our floor planning system. So when the pandemic broke out, we'd already had a roadmap for two to four years We'd already started to exercise in virtual reality a year and a half ago. We'd started to play around with it. The minute that Facebook bought Oculus, we knew that there was going to be a mass market for it. And events are all about visualizing. We're all about imagination. We're all about creativity. So all of this technology was just so normal for us. We were like, it's amazing. We're just bringing everything to life. We're just bringing more and more things to life. So how can it not work that suddenly we're in virtual reality? And obviously we were not building it because it was a pandemic. We were building it because we saw it as the future of just people not wanting to travel so much, of people wanting to slow down their lives, of people wanting immediate responses. I don't want to fly to Germany to make a decision that I want to have an event in Germany. I want to see something in my living room. I want to put on the virtual reality goggles and jump into Germany. Or I want to come on the web browser and have an experience of a remote venue to look into. So we were already seeing a lot of that. But when the pandemic shut down the whole industry, we then realized, okay, we need to accelerate. We need to bring our world into the virtual world because we had the visualization tools. We had the floor planning tools. We had the communication tools. We had a lot of amazing technology that we understood could just help the world of virtual, which was becoming, in our opinion, 2D, which was really going backwards to where we were going forwards of being immersive, of being visual. 
there's no visual here. Okay, we've got two beautiful faces here and we're happy to be sitting and talking to each other, but there's nothing else going on. We're not inside anything. We're not experiencing anything. And for us, that was very sad at that particular moment because we thought we're going backwards. We're not going forwards in the way that we're running events. And how can we bring the world of technology forward a step instead of it just people being satisfied with really the tools that were just there. We fell into these tools because there was nothing there. It wasn't that we fell into Zoom because Zoom built it for us as an industry. Right. Zoom happened to be out there, right? right? And it was a communication tool that we desperately needed. <clears throat> Microsoft Teams was out there. Cisco was out there. And then the smart guys like Hopin and Bizaboo and some other people, they were the smart technology companies that woke up very fast and said, okay, I can take Zoom and I can package it and I can make it great within my products. And Hopin did the same, which was fantastic. And they made a lot of money, but they didn't give us enough of an experience. And we had started to feel the shift of moving forward by making the whole space of technology for our events in a visual, imaginative experience. Right. And so Daniel and you and Yaron got very busy very quick and built something that probably had we not had an immediate need for it would have taken much longer. I don't even know if it would have even, because technology changes so much, who knows in two years if we would have missed the boats. Maybe there would have been no boats there. So that's why we talk about timing, right? Natasha, what we said from the very beginning, entrepreneurship and coming up with ideas, you can have the best technology, but there's no market fit. Apple came really late into the game. If Apple would have come with their smartphone 10 years ago, I don't think anybody would have jumped on board because they didn't have the bandwidth. Nobody would have understood what to do with it. But by the time Apple came out with their phone, we were already comfortable. We were texting, we were messaging, we were taking pictures. We were desperate for something else. So timing with technology is so, so important. And the market fit is so important and understanding who your end user is. You can't make something complicated if they can't use it. Right. So right now, people are so tired of the Zoom gloom. Even though we're having a good time talking to each other visually and experientially, there's not a whole lot going on. So talk to everyone about what Expo is, because by the time this airs, lots of events will have happened on your platform, and then there'll be a line out the door for people using it. If you don't know anything about us, we are a virtual parallel universe, okay? And that might sound like nothing to you, but think about events, okay? Think about walking into the plaza, and the plaza's got all these beautiful things that you're surrounded by. It's got its iconic, incredible statues, and it's got its arches, and it's got its marble and it's just glorious 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 and you are standing there and suddenly there are tables and there's lounge furniture and you are walking and you're meeting your friends and you're having a conversation so what we did in expo is we decided to build that parallel world we decided why can't you have all of that why should you be sitting here why shouldn't you be immersed in the plaza's ballroom or any of the other hundreds of spaces that we have or any of your imagination spaces that you might have out there. It's endless, right? But why shouldn't you feel that immersive experience? Why shouldn't you have that, like Natasha said, that experiential experience of walking and talking and exploring and feeling? 
the only thing you can't do in our world yet is eat. We cannot eat, but <laughs> we can put you in a cafe and you can be sitting at home eating and you could be feeling the experience of the cafe around you or the restaurant around you to give you that immersive experience. And so when we talk about parallel universes, we only talk about the parallel universes because we know what we really want. We've experienced enough events to understand that we want that feeling of an event. So we brought you into the space and we gave you that experience of being there and networking. We built talking heads, which are robots, so that you can have video head chats, so that you're still communicating. You're not an avatar. We didn't love the whole avatar thing because you can't feel each other. At least here, the one thing that we learned about Zoom and all these 2D platforms is that we love seeing each other. We might get bored of the experience, but one of the things that we learned we love is seeing the faces. So we brought that talking head, which is really this box, it's exactly this box, into the robots that walk and talk, and you have that experience together. And it's an amazing product. And It's amazing. And it's blowing my mind. I really haven't seen anything yet that even comes close to beating that experience with Expo. So the event that we're going to be doing next week I have an entire ballroom. It's been designed by a professional event designer and it has this look and feel. But if we didn't like the way it looked and felt, we could have changed everything. Yeah, you start with an empty canvas, just like you do in the real event world. You go into a ballroom, you go into an empty space, an empty canvas, and you create. And you're using our floor planning system. So you are in a 2D environment. You've got our libraries of thousands of pieces of objects. Now we've built the libraries out to screens and banners and booths and lots of different things like Natasha's talking about. You can have anything that you want in this world. Being able to give a public speech or an address or a panel interview, you can have live entertainment, you can have pre-recorded entertainment. And what I love about your story, Sandy, is that if you really build a journey map of your life, you're building on top of everything that you've experienced, and it's just informing you of the next move, I think this application is going to rock the event industry. It's going to bolster your business with all seated, especially when people go back to in-person because there'll be hybrid events. Hybrid. There'll be the hybrid. And the hybrid's very important because then we mirror the the universe. Okay, we mirror the parallel universe. If you're in person at a hotel, at an event, it'll be designed with various colors and decor and signage and messaging. But if you happen to be an attendee virtually, you'll see the same elements. The only thing you'll have the same experience. You'll have the parallel experience of what's happening in the virtual. And the truth is technology is going to grow very, very far. We've got augmented reality coming. So we've got to have glasses. So if you're in the real world in a year from now and you put on your augmented reality glasses, your friends will pop up next to you. We're going to be losing the worlds between the two realities. Right. Of where are we? And I think there's very exciting times to come. We're at the very early stages of where we're going to go in this world. So we don't have much time. And I want to ask you a couple of questions further before we go. Is One, as you live in Tel Aviv, Israel, and you have a fully distributed workforce, in a nutshell, how does that work? <laughs> Well, we actually were a little lucky because we were always remote. 
Israel's only where the development is done. Markets in America, I came to live in America for two years when we first started, but I came to live where my market was so I could understand more and more and work with them to understand more and more about the product. So the remoteness of us being between, as we grew the company in America, we were working with Israel. Then we started to go into the European market. We wanted to build a studio for our designing. So we built it in Kiev because there's a lot of talent out there that we researched and found. And today we've got offices all over the place and we're 70, 80 people working all over the place. And it's just great. It's actually a pool of talent. I love the diversity of how we are as a company. You will not find more different people, more different cultures. So we didn't have such an issue with the remote. We actually set a lot of protocols already how to work remotely. It wasn't difficult for us in that respect. So if you could think of the one strategy that you're going to double down on to ensure growth and stability and scaling in your company, is there one that comes to mind? So in business, the strategy that you'll have? It's really interesting because it's really what we're going through right now. There's a lot of talk about it. We're in growth mode. For me personally, it's all about the culture of the company. If you can keep the culture of what you really believe in, in your core values of your brand, of who you are, then scaling and growing is not going to be a problem because you're going to keep on bringing in the right people. And those people will grow with your family. They'll grow with you as a company. We built our company in such a way of culture that now the people that are moving up in the company that are taking like mid-level management positions are able to lead the next generation that's coming in. And that generation then will be leading the next one. Right. And that becomes the culture of your company. You have to give a lot of trust, a lot of faith in the people that are working for you. And we work extremely hard. And I truly believe that you can grow companies and scaling in any numbers if you have the infrastructure and the belief of core values and the culture of how you want to grow your company, of the people that you want to work with. And that's, that's what we're great, doing right now. It's a great message. And it's a great message to all people that will be listening to this because they'll be in various stages of their entrepreneurial journey from very beginning to not even believing they can do it to a billion dollar company. Sandy just took us through her entrepreneurial journey, which led her to the SaaS company she co-founded, All Seated, then doing a natural pivot to creating one of the most dynamic and exciting virtual event platforms I have ever seen, Expo. For more information on Sandy, All Seated, and Expo, check out the links in the show notes where you're listening to this podcast. You have events to plan, but you have no idea where to start. Entire Productions creates in-person and virtual events for Fortune 500 companies and melts away all of the stress. It's better than getting a 90-minute massage. For more information about me, go to my website, natashamiller.co. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you loved the show. If you did, please subscribe. Also, if you haven't done so yet, please leave a review where you're listening to this podcast now. I'm Natasha Miller, and you've been listening to Fascinating Entrepreneurs.